to the beginning of our show. Will we make it out alive? With Amy the Poop Detective and Jed the Magical Mapper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We hope to make it out alive from this episode. Hello and welcome to Will We Make It Out Alive? I'm Amy the Poop Detective. And I'm Jen the Magical Mapper. Welcome to episode 21, The Great Recycling Myth. Is it time to trash recycling? In this episode, we will be getting deeper into plastics and their impacts on environmental and human health. This is part two of our plastic spotlight. Three months ago. Has it been that long? I know, right? Wow. We shared some background on plastics, how plastic recycling isn't really working, the plastic ban from China, (laughs) and I shared a bunch of depressing plastic facts. Yeah, you did. So if you haven't listened to that episode and you want a little more background before we delve into this episode, check out episode 18 first. We'll have a link in our show notes to that. And yes, we did do this two-part series in the correct order. (laughs) Yay, go us! keep you on... Your toes. We decided to add a couple episodes in between to see if you're paying attention or not. So were you? No. Yes. I totally was. Hmm. So in this episode, we will learn more about the great recycling myth and a little bit. We're going to just touch on zero waste lifestyle. We might do another episode later about that more in detail. Jen's going to talk a little bit about how cartography is used to better display information on your maps. And that's going to include a critique on a map that Jen is designing, which I have not yet seen. <laughs> and I'm quite excited to critique. <laughs> Uh-oh. As you may remember from last month, the Survive the Sound is going on right now. Right now. And you can go and see how our team is doing. It's too late to join at this point, but you can still check in and see how the fish are surviving or not. And what that Hood Canal Bridge is doing to the Skokomish fish. Yeah. It's very inappropriate. They're probably all dead. Probably all dead. I mean, hopefully not. Hopefully I picked a good fish this time. Which fish did you pick? Do you remember? Venti. Mm, The coffee cup. The coffee cup one. And it's big. Like the biggest coffee you can get, I think. Oh. I think. So you're going with bigger means survive longer, Hope, huh? Hopefully. I'm going with smaller and faster survives mm, the longest. We'll see. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so, well, as you may know, this pandemic is still going on. It is? Yeah, unfortunately. How many days have you been at home for? I don't know. I've lost track. I'm over 40. That's what I oh, know. Wow. Woohoo! Um, I have no idea. And speaking of that, I might be losing my mind a little bit. Um, happens to the best of us with that much time at home. It does. So one of the ways that I had been kind of dealing with the stay at home orders and being alone and everything was to binge watch TV and not only any TV, but NCIS of all things, which is actually really interesting because Jen typically doesn't watch I mean she watches some interesting stuff but a lot of trash tv she's pretty anti I feel like so I was quite surprised to hear she was watching this binge watching it nonetheless well and I I have to say I I really don't enjoy watching television a lot I I watch it occasionally and there are some shows I really like but I just you know I prefer reading and just doing other things listening to podcasts listening to audiobooks but for some reason I just am 
like the way I was getting through was binge watching TV and NCIS of all things, which is so problematic in so many ways. <laughs> and I have no idea, but that's what was doing it. So unfortunately, it got to be a little too much. As I was watching more and more, I started identifying with some of the characters and really getting into the story. And especially with one character named Ziva, who's just this total badass and takes care of herself and doesn't rely on anyone and, you know, has trust issues and all this stuff. But so I was really getting into following her story. And anyway, she finally almost gets together with the, her love interest, but ends up kind of freaking out and saying, I have to go be by myself. I don't like the way my life's going. I, you know, I got to figure this out on my own. So they say goodbye at the airport and she tells her love interest, you are loved. And that really got me. But I was okay still until the next day when my sister sent me this lovely care package and it had hand soap in it. And the hand soap is called, you are loved. <laughs> And that set me over the edge. <laughs> um, yeah. I got a text message from Jen a little bit later uh, asking what I was doing, which I thought for sure was a nudge to like get on our podcast because we kind of have been slacking even though we've been at home. Very busy doing things like binge watching television yes. and, you know, things that people have to do during a pandemic for your mental health. Mm -hmm. So I thought she was going to be like, hey, why haven't you been working on this? And instead I got this response message that was like, I'm not doing so well or something like that, which of course isn't very much information. And during the pandemic, <laughs> we were immediately like, oh, no, does she have the Rona? Is she coughing? Does she have a fever? Does she have a... And then I called her and it appeared to be not leaking from her nose or mouth, but more from his, her eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> And then she told me the story and there were more tears. It was And there was uh just an outburst of uncontrollable laughter on Amy's end. <laughs> <laughs> That's what supportive friends do, Jen. It, it is. It made me laugh. <laughs> Um, eventually she got out of the funk <laughs> so I had to cut myself off from NCIS temporarily and uh, just like take a break from the the old uh, screen for a while yeah yeah <laughs> but I'm I'm doing much better now so thank you we hope that you are all yes. surviving the pandemic and the stay at home out there right now you know, great news that a lot of states have seen the curve flattening and, mm -hmm. you know, there's some kind of light at the end of the tunnel, but not really because obviously we're until we have immunity or a cure vaccine. Mm hmm. We're going to be living with this for a while. So. Yeah. So just be kind to yourselves. Make sure you're taking care of yourselves and. And check in on your friends like Jen Jen, <laughs> who might need to feel a little more love. <laughs> during the pandemic and i'd like to remind all of our listeners that you are loved oh <laughs> put those tears away ah uh, anyway should we get into the episode yeah i guess let's get into the let's get into the more depressing Aww. stuff because you know we're, we're not doing an episode here to uplift you during the pandemic we're going to be talking about plastics some more so mm. it's going to be pretty sad 
So in the last plastics episode, we introduced plastics and talked a lot about how recycling doesn't really address the problem, mostly because of confusion about what is or is not recycling and because companies create plastic goods that are difficult or impossible to recycle. And of course, there's the wish cyclers, how they be hopefully recycling things out there that just couldn't be recycled ever. So we're not going to talk as much about that today, but today we're going to talk a little bit more about the environmental and human health impacts of plastics, the history of plastics and recycling, some of the real life ways to combat the plastic epidemic, including thinking about things like circular economies and zero waste lifestyles. And we're going to touch a little bit on the great recycling myth as well. So. To get us started, let's talk a little bit more about the environmental and human health risks. I mean, so how insidious are plastics in relation to human and ecosystem health? Probably pretty, I'd guess, but why don't you tell me? Wow, Jen, you get a gold star for that answer. (laughs) You obviously have been paying attention. Good job. So, like we said, episode 18, we dropped a lot of depressing facts about plastics and the environment, but we really barely hit on the human and environmental impacts. So we're going to jump right into the insidiousness of it all. Mm. This may be shocking to you, Jen, based on your answer, but plastics pollute at all levels. What? During the manufacture, during its use, and during its disposal. Mm. Sweet. Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it sweet, but... (laughs) Let's start from the very beginning. So, manufacturing plastics. Well, this may not come as a surprise. Many people are unaware of how detrimental the actual production of plastics is in the first place. In relation to human health, plastic production releases airborne toxins such as benzene and toluene and other carcinogens and nasty stuff that makes you sick when you breathe it in. Hmm. There's also fires and explosions at chemical plants. Hmm. The day before Thanksgiving last year, a blaze at the Texas Petroleum Chemical Plant in Port Neches, I don't know if I said that right, set off two explosions, forcing 50,000 people to evacuate their homes. And a week later, authorities issued another evacuation warning after air monitors detected high levels of carcinogen. That's depressing. Yes. Happy holidays, everyone. Right. Happy Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. That was when you could still go out and enjoy life, right. actually. <laughs> <laughs> and sadly... You know, many of these plants are in poor areas and really we could and probably should and probably will do a whole episode just on environmental justice and how not in my backyard impacts those without the money to fight these projects. Mm. Yeah. So many of the chemicals found in plastics are known endocrine disruptors. So this is after they've been produced and now they're in use. Whack fact. Endocrine disruptors can produce adverse developmental, reproductive, neurological, and immune effects in both humans and wildlife. According to the National Institutes of Environmental Health, endocrine disruptors can mimic or partly mimic naturally occurring hormones in the body, like estrogens, which are the female sex hormone, androgens, which are the male sex hormone, and thyroid hormones. This can be especially impactful during a baby's development, and it can cause changes that are permanent. Mmm, those sound really cool. Yeah. Psych. Basically, these are chemicals that interfere with our hormone systems in our bodies. They can cause cancerous tumors, birth defects, and developmental disorders. Any system in the body controlled by hormones can be derailed by an endocrine disruptor. And the problem is there are 
thousands of chemicals out there, and unfortunately, we treat them all as they do not harm until there is sufficient data to show otherwise, instead of using the precautionary principle and actually testing chemical substances at length prior to allowing widespread use to minimize the risk to human and environmental health. Endocrine disruptors are not regulated by the FDA. Really? Yeah. Wow. And many plastics are notorious for their estrogenic mimickers, which are a type of endocrine disruptors that mimic estrogen, the female hormone. <laughs> so I had no idea about that. Yeah. So, and these are found in pretty much all plastics, even those that are labeled BPA safe or different plastics like silicone and latex. They almost all always test positive for estrogenic mimickers. Wow. If you want to go down the endocrine disruptor wormhole, check out the half hour video, Our Chemical Lives, link in our show notes. It's fascinating, sad about just all about endocrine disruptors. Another fun fact, after we wash a plastic container, eat food, or use a product on our body, the endocrine disruptors and other chemicals that leach from the plastic are rinsed down the drain. Many of these chemicals are not treated by traditional wastewater treatment plant processes, and then they end up in the water and our environment. Hmm. And unfortunately, 96% of Americans have endocrine disruptors in their blood, but there are all sorts of sources, including the food we eat, which also has microplastics in it. Hmm. Speaking of microplastics, microplastics are a new cause for human health concern. They're invisible but pervasive. And microplastics are washed into oceans and blown through the air. Yeah. A microplastic particle is any piece of plastic smaller than five millimeters, but many are much smaller and only visible under a microscope. And it's now estimated that we consume nearly a credit card worth of microplastics in our food every week. I mean, that is so disturbing. And to think of what the human health impacts of that could be Mm -hmm. because of the endocrine disruptors alone. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, what it might be doing to our ability to intake nutrients and stuff like that. I mean, hopefully for our bodies compared to the amount. I don't know. That's still a lot of plastic. That's a lot of plastic. Does it just go through our system? I don't know. (sighs) Disturbing. Also, many of these microplastic fibrous strands are associated with synthetic fabric. So when we wash synthetic fabric or synthetic clothing, we send hundreds of thousands of these tiny strands down the drain through our wastewater treatment plants, um, which are not designed to remove the tiny fibers. And then the treated wastewater is typically discharged to surface water. Yeah, from there, insects, birds, and fish eat the tiny fibers, and the fibers can also become airborne, and they move through the food chain. That's super great. Mm -hmm. That's a really cool experiment that we're doing on the planet. to figure out how microplastics impact human and animal health and probably overall environmental health. Mm -hmm. Just a live experiment. That's great. Yeah. Whack fact. People that meet their recommended water intake through tap water ingest an estimated 4,000 plastic particles annually. But get this. Those who only drink bottled water ingest an estimated 90,000 plastic particles. Holy cow. Annually. So there's yet another reason to drink tap water over bottled water. Yeah. The bottom line is plastics are very obviously impacting our human health every day. Well, speaking of human health or health in general, guess how much the heaviest domestic cat on record weighed? 38 pounds. No. 46 pounds, 15.2 ounces. Wow. Almost 47 pounds. Isn't that crazy? That is amazing. That would be heavier than Ari. Oh my goodness. 
So that the seven year old <laughs> that cat fact is brought to you by coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully your cats are not getting your fat cats can home. get fatter still. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I like it. Uh-huh. So now we'll talk a little bit about the environmental impacts of plastic. So the presence of plastic, particularly microplastics within the food chain, is increasing. Actually, though, in the 1960s, microplastics were first observed in the guts of seabirds and obviously since then have been found in increasing concentrations. Back in the 60s? Right. Isn't that crazy that it's been an issue for that long? Especially considering how much more plastic we Mm -hmm. use now. Yeah. So obviously, kind of what we were talking about, the long-term effects of plastic in the food chain and our bodies is poorly understood. And in 2009, it was estimated that 50 to 80% of debris in marine areas is plastic. Wow. There are obviously worrying reports that much of our plastic junk has found its way into our oceans where they collect into these giant gyres floating out on the ocean currents. <sighs> and there are estimates that around 8 million tons of plastic waste ends up in the world's oceans annually. 8 million tons. 8 million tons is equivalent about to 1 billion elephants. What? Dang. Or 80 million blue whales, which of course is the largest mammal on the planet. Yeah. Or 25,000 Empire State Buildings. Huh. And all of those are very hard to visualize still, I feel like. But there's yeah. there's some comparison for some kind of an idea of what that looks like. Yeah. Ghost nets, fishing line traps, things that are designed to catch sea life that's been abandoned or lost in the ocean continues to wreak havoc on land and at sea. Oh, yeah. I saw today that, well, as we're recording today, that a blue, blue whale is kind of trapped in some derelict... Uh, fishing nets do you mean a gray whale i do what did i say (laughs) blue well whatever some color of whale (laughs) a whale uh yeah so that is on april 24th today the day we're recording Mm -hmm. there is a gray whale stuck in the straits of juan de fuca that's been entangled in derelict fishing gear (sighs) washington department of natural resources NOAA, and a couple other organizations are working to try to untangle it Mm. And things like fishing line are estimated to take over 600 years to decompose. Wow. Whales have been impacted. Some have had their digestive systems blocked, and that's resulted in their death. Yeah. Birds almost everywhere are died. You will know this if you follow us on Facebook. Sadly. Most have plastic in their stomachs, and many die because the birds can't digest the plastic, so they die through lack of nutrition. Oh, poor birdies. Yes. A recent study estimated that 9 in 10 of the world's seabirds now have pieces of plastic in their guts. That's so pretty much all like of them. like 90%. Wow. That would be equivalent to 90%. High five on that Woo-hoo. math. Woo! <laughs> so, yeah. Some albatross and shearwater have been found to have nearly 3,000 pieces of plastic, up to 8 kilograms in their stomach. That's the equivalent of a human eating 12 pizzas worth of plastic, quote-unquote, food. But then it's staying in your stomach. Correct. Um, I don't even think I could eat 12 pizzas at, at once. 
Well, they don't eat it at once. They eat it over their lifetime, and it just stays in their tummies. And their their regular food then doesn't have any space right. in there. Ugh. A report calculated that by 2050, the world's oceans are expected to contain more plastics than fish by weight. No. Cool. No. Ugh. Very cool. But in a very depressing report in 2018 by the Global Oceanic Environmental Survey Foundation found that the ecosystem in seas and oceans may collapse in the next 25 years, potentially causing failure of terrestrial ecosystem and very possibly the end of life on Earth as we know it. No! Maybe not because of the coronavirus. The main agents of this prediction were hypothesized to be plastic, ocean acidification, and ocean pollution. That's, wow. Interesting. Is that the word you were looking uh, for, Jen? No, not at all. <laughs> I was going to say that's horrifying. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. In order to prevent such a catastrophe, experts have proposed a total single-use plastic ban, wood-burning bans while planting as many trees as possible, pollution-free recycling of electronics, and by 2030, all industries have zero toxic discharge. Hmm. 2030 is only 10 years away from now for us oldies that have a hard time remembering what year it is. That's not very long. No. One British scientist is advocating for special protection and preservation of peat bogs, wetlands, marshlands, and mangrove swamps to ensure carbon dioxide is absorbed from the atmosphere. You know, the areas that just got unprotected by the Clean Water Act rollbacks. Anyway, I'm getting stressed out now. <laughs> so the uh, the other big environmental impact from plastics is the climate change impact, mm-hmm. and the impact goes beyond the waste problem. That is really the focus of a lot of public concern. Although plastic is often seen as a separate issue from climate change, both its production and its afterlife are in fact major sources of greenhouse gas emissions. Emissions come from nearly every stage of plastic's life. First, there is the energy-intensive nature of oil and gas extraction. Mm -hmm. Then ethane cracking requires enormous amounts of power, which at the same time has a large greenhouse gas footprint. For example, one shell plant has a permit allowing them to emit as much carbon dioxide annually as 480,000 cars. Wow. In 2019, the Center for International Environmental Law published a new report on the impact of plastic on climate change. Global emissions linked to plastic, now just under 900 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent annually. And could by 2030 reach 1.3 billion tons, as much as almost 300 coal-fired power plants. Wow. So this is this is a big deal and something we should be paying attention to. Yeah. And then finally, um, the disposal results in additional emissions. Uh, if we put it into landfills, plastic produce methane as it decomposes, which is a greenhouse gas. If the landfill is not collecting that methane to create energy, then the decomposition of these and all other natural materials actually adds to greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. In addition, plastics can be challenging to manage in landfills because they do not decompose at the same rates as other landfill materials. Mm-hmm. New research shows that plastics just out in the environment, so the ones that don't make it to the landfill and don't get incinerated, also are releasing greenhouse gases as they degrade which is a potentially vast and uncontrolled source of emissions that, you know, is floating around in the ocean right now and we don't have a way to get rid of. Right. 
And then lastly, there's an estimated 12% of all plastic that's incinerated. And of course, that releases more greenhouse gases, as well as other dangerous toxins, uh, including dioxins and heavy metals. And there's a whole industry that's actually promoting the expansion of incineration to waste electricity plants, which they describe as a source of renewable energy. Hmm. Yeah. On that note, I think it's time for another cat fact. Save us, please. (laughs) Okay, well, also brought to you by the pandemic. Did you know that a cat has the power to sometimes heal themselves by purring? Mm. Yeah, so a, a cat's purr has kind of the same frequency at which muscles and bones best repair themselves and, and grow. Fascinating. Yeah, so, I mean, I'd volunteer to be a test subject to see if a cat's purr has the same effect on humans potentially Mm. would you have to vibrate your body at the same frequency as the purr or you would just have a cat sit on i would just have a cat sit on me and purr yeah mm -hmm. so now we're going to talk a little bit more about the history of plastics and recycling and the rise of the single-use disposable society I mean, how did we get here, piling up the plastic waste around the planet? Let's discuss the birth of plastic and its rise in our society over the last hundred or so years. Hmm. So, according to the BBC.com, in 1907, Leo Bakeland invented Bakelite, the first fully synthetic plastic, meaning it contained no molecules found in nature. Bakeland had been searching for a synthetic substitute for shellac, a natural electrical insulator, to meet the needs of the rapidly electrifying United States. Hmm. It was the first synthetic plastic, the first to be derived not from plants or animals, but from fossil fuels. His work opened the floodgates to a torrent of now familiar synthetic plastics, including polystyrene in 1929, polyester in 1930, and PVC and polyethylene in 1933 and nylons in 1935. Hmm. Synthetic plastics had the added advantage that they seemingly lasted forever and no organisms had evolved that were capable of digesting these complicated and alien materials. Um, yay? Is that really that an advantage? advantage? Is, of course, also a great disadvantage. Right. But what really gr- drove the industry's growth was the war effort. As plastics were used in everything from military vehicles to radar insulation, oil and gas companies built a shit ton of plants to turn crude oil into plastic. Hmm. What is the equivalent of a shit ton? I think it's 8.3 billion tons. Oh, okay. Because that, that's how much has been produced. Oh, <laughs> damn. <laughs> but obviously when the war ended, it was kind of boom or bust, so they were forced to think outside the box. Or should we say inside the box? Because they actually turned their attention to mass consumer good <laughs> with new products such as Tupperware launched in 1948. Hmm. Meanwhile, recycling started up in the 30s and 40s out of necessity during the war. Of course, to start, it focused on glass and aluminum. But in the post-war boom, there was a decrease in conservationism in the U.S., and it wasn't until the environmental movement of the 60s and 70s that recycling started to become popular again. Then there was the sales hype of the 60s, that plastic can be thrown away, and the beginning of our awesome one-time-use disposable fast food culture where plastic has thrived. 
Yay. As innovations in <laughs> plastic materials for products gave better alternatives to heavier materials, the opportunity to reduce shipping weight, lengthen shelf life, and better protect the content, more and more products began to be packaged in plastics. I mean, I guess those are benefits in some ways. As we talked about last or the last plastics episode, yeah. there are some beneficial uses to plastic, and until we can find good alternatives for those, we should probably continue to use it but there's a lot of stuff that we don't need to do certainly that right we are, that is a very that gets back to that disposable fast food kind of culture right so in 1972 the first recycling mill to accept residential plastic began operations in pennsylvania Ooh. in 1976 mobile oil introduced the plastic bag to the united states so we've had those around for 44 lovely years then in 1982, Safeway and Kroger, two of the biggest U.S. grocery chains at the time, which have since merged, of course, started to switch from paper to plastic bags. Of course, that was touted as a way to save trees at the time. Hmm. And then during the 80s, major U.S. cities began establishing curbside recycling collection programs for plastics and other recyclables. And by 1986, there was a U.S.-wide letter writing campaign to grocers raising concerns about the negative environmental effects of plastic bags wow that was so, fast that's literally four years after the two biggies started right. using them and 10 years from when the very first plastic bag was introduced to the united states wow yeah so people are not stupid right it's just these companies and their lobbyists <sighs> are highly effective at manipulating the system mm -hmm. so to further complicate the issue in 1988 to assist recycling of disposable items the plastic bottle institute of the u.s society of plastic industry <laughs> devised a now familiar scheme to mark plastic bottles by plastic type. Under the scheme, a plastic container is marked with a triangle and the three chasing arrows, which encloses the number denoting the plastic type. The three chasing arrow plastic type resulted in an even more confused public who wanted to associate specific numbers to their recyclability. And that is still done to today, right. basically. Yep. And unfortunately, some of those aren't recyclable at all anywhere, like ever, not at all, even though they have that little symbol on there that people think means recycling. Right. Just another great example of kind of greenwashing. Greenwashing that made it so that recycling was more complicated, though, and less likely to succeed, which allowed the packaging people to continue to have a market to make more of these packages in the mm. form of plastic bottles. Yeah. So we're going to get into that in a little bit more here in a minute. Okay. By 1990, more than 10,000 communities had some sort of public recycling collection program in the U.S. And curbside recycling started to take off around that time, too. According to the environmental historian Bartow J. Elmore, in regards to the industry supporting curbside pickup, by pushing for curbside recycling, you're mobilizing a nation to do a lot of the labor for you. They're having the people bring the trash back to you at a low cost and invest in a lot of the infrastructure through uh, landfills and, and public pickup of garbage that these industries didn't have to build and they didn't own. Hmm. Brilliant. Mm, devious. Mm -hmm. 
1990, Coca-Cola started using a small amount of recycled plastic in their bottles. In 1993, Patagonia started using recycled plastic in their fleece and outdoor products, a practice that continues to today. And then in 1997, Captain Charles Moore discovered the Great Pacific Garbage Patch in the remote North Pacific, where plastic is estimated to outweigh plankton 6 to 1, drawing global attention to the accumulation of plastics in the ocean. Huh. It's all very depressing, Amy. Yep, that's what I'm here for. (laughs) The world wasn't depressing enough out there. This is actually, everything that's going on with the stay-at-home order is great at addressing a lot of these issues, really. It it really is. And maybe we'll talk more about that next episode. Then in the 2000s, we started seeing commingled curbside recycling grow. As of April 2016, just 10 states plus Guam have a deposit refund system for beverage containers. And global production of plastics increased annually from 2 million metric tons in 1950 to over 400 million metric tons in 2015. Wow. Outgrowing most other man-made materials. That, wow. That, mm, I'm speechless, apparently. (laughs) Better than interesting. (sighs) Yeah. So, uh, basically, now we have major oil companies that are getting ready to ramp up plastic production as consumers try to be more savvy with their plastic purchases. And the reason why they're ramping up is because they're actually counting on new plastics to help offset some of the lack of global demand for oil for cars. So... (sighs) Right. It's kind of irritating. They're like, oh, we'll stay in here with this other thing that's uh, more insidious. I mean, I'd actually like to see like a ecological footprint of cars versus plastic, which one actually has a bigger impact cradle to grave on the planet. Yeah, that's interesting because plastic's actually creating a product, but gas in theory burns up. Right. But there, I'm sure there's byproducts. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, anyways. <laughs> We digress. Whatever. We digress. So basically, as public concern about plastic pollution rises, the fossil fuel and petrochemical industries are pouring billions of dollars into new plants intended to make millions more tons of plastic than they currently pump out. And their lobbyists are busy trying to convince people that we shouldn't come up with better products. Of course they are. It's quite (laughs) infuriating. Yes. Companies like ExxonMobil and Shell are ramping up their plastic production to minimize their losses should there be a serious reduction in demand for fuels due to climate change. Or, I don't know, maybe a global pandemic. Right. <laughs> Have you seen some of the images of the tankers that are sitting out in the ocean? Just Yeah, there's so many of them. Like $30,000 a day, I heard it cost for them to just sit out there. Yeah. Because nobody's driving. And also there was this big shell game with Russia and Saudi Arabia and the U.S. right before all the shutdowns happened. So that was already going on. Our oil prices were already crashing. And then nobody's been driving or flying. So it's just sitting out there because they have no place to put it. It's just in storage in the ocean. A great place to store a bunch of oil, by the way. It's really where I want it to be stored. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so they're probably building up their plastics supplies right now. I don't know. Maybe there's Ugh. a need for some of that stuff in the PPEs that people don't have access mm-hmm. to. Digressing again. <laughs> so petrochemicals, the category that includes plastic, now account for 14% of oil use and are expected to drive half of oil demand growth between now and 2050, according to the International Energy Agency. The World Economic Forum predicts plastic production will double in the next 20 years. 
So we're literally yeah. trying to stop using plastics right now, and they're saying that it's the production of it will double in the next 20 years. That's just disgusting. Yeah. So Steve Fett, a staff attorney at the Center for International Environmental Law, uh, said, quote, in the context of a world trying to shift off of fossil fuels as an energy source, plastics is where oil and gas companies see the growth. They're looking for a way to monetize it. You can think of plastic as a kind of subsidy for fracking, hmm. end quote. And because the American fracking boom is unearthing large amounts of the plastic feedstock ethane, it's a big growth area for plastic production. Natural gas prices are low and fracking operations are losing money, so producers have been eager to find another place to use this ethane that they get as a byproduct of drilling. And they're using it in plastics. New plastics. Yay. <sighs> The Alliance to End Plastic Waste just wants to make more of it. It's founded by major Wait, petrochemical what? companies. And while they're promising beach cleanups and recycling campaigns and its key members, including Shell and ExxonMobil, announced plans to build new multi-billion dollar polyethylene and petrochemical plants that produce the inexpensive toxic plastic products. These industries are investing $180 billion into producing 40% more plastic. I'm gonna get into that a little bit more, Jen. I can see, okay. I can see it's cranking in your head there. It's this is yeah, not making sense. Okay. So, according to a Mother Jones article on the origins of the anti-litter campaign, the entire anti-litter movement was initiated by a consortium of industry groups who wanted to divert the nation's attention away from even more radical legislation to control the amount of waste these companies were putting off. Okay, I'm going to unpack that a little bit because I know that's kind of a lot there. But basically, yeah, the thing that we all want to not litter, right? we've been brainwashed with that campaign to look there instead of somewhere else. So really? basically, after World War II, manufacturers needed to figure out a way to convince customers to keep throwing their existing stuff out and get new stuff. They needed to make things that were meant to break, become unfashionable, or obsolete. Right. Disgusting. So in 1953, Vermont passed a law banning throwaway bottles. The state suddenly appeared poised to pass laws that would require manufacturers and packaging industry in particular to make less junk in the first place interesting also in 1953 the packaging industry teamed up with other industries including coca-cola and dixie cup to form keep america beautiful you heard of that one before mm, yeah which mm -hmm. still exists today keep america beautiful was basically a campaign against individual bad environmental practices instead of the business taking responsibility for their waste so it was basically saying people who litter are pigs and if you are littering you are a gross person and you are doing this bad thing instead of saying hey people that are producing these things why don't we make them out of something else that's not going to produce this garbage in the first place and you should be responsible for your product all the way to the end of life right this is back in 1953 this is just I so fascinating to me yeah and it worked by the late 1950s, anti-litter ordinances were being passed across the country and not a single restriction on packaging could be found. And that continues today with heavy lobbying from the packaging industry. For example, there are only 12 states that have bottle deposit laws, despite the fact that the laws demonstrably save energy and reduce consumption by promoting reuse and recycling. Here in Oregon, a year after the law passed in 1972, there were 385 million 
fewer beverage containers consumed in the state. So it did wow. reduce consumption also, but you could argue Intr- that's a good oh, thing. That is a good thing. That's also really intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, considering it was 1972, especially that uh-huh. they had that, they already had that many bottles that were being consumed that they were able to drop by three. I don't know what the total number for the year was. I'm kind of curious now, but that they were able to drop by 385 right. million is kind of bonkers. That is in just one state. Yeah, that's yeah. wow. So basically, Coke's decades of behind the scenes efforts have succeeded in shifting the cost of waste management from Coke and other beverage companies to municipal recycling programs. According to Bartow Elmore, hopefully I got that name right. <laughs> A historian and author of Citizen Coke, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism, Coke took something the company had had to manage and pay for and really put it on the public, said Elmer, who described the taxpayer-funded curbside recycling that's emerged in the absence of a nationwide deposit system as a massive subsidy we ended up giving the beverage industry. Well, more people should know about that. Right. So, and then we have this Keep America Beautiful campaign, which today has plastic producing industry members on its board, which have a vested interest in keeping recycling rates down and that there continues to be a demand for new plastics. And Hmm. they apparently decided earlier this year that they would not agree to a society-wide standardized labeling system and some argue that's because they've seen it work and it would dramatically reduce the amount of new plastic that would need to be produced. Wow. What? We were all fed a lie about recycling from the very get-go from the Coca-Cola. They were actually, they teamed up. Philip Morris was involved in this also, of course, just Mm -hmm. to add to the super sketchy companies involved. I mean, now that all these companies are considered people in the United States, can we go after them now? Right. In a quote from Jenna Jambeck, environmental engineering professor with the University of Georgia, gaining control of plastic waste is now such a large task that it calls for a comprehensive global approach that involves rethinking plastic chemistry, product design, recycling strategies, and consumer use. It might be harsh to hear, but we are prisoners to the petrochemical industry. That That's all so disgusting. Let's just do one more cat fact. Ooh, you think a cat fact will save us, Jen? <laughs> I think maybe. Hey, Amy. Hey, what? Do you know how old like cats can live? Well, I mean, are we, we both- talking about cougars like you or like a house cat? <laughs> a house cat. <laughs> I mean, I feel like like 20 years is probably a pretty decent house cat life. Okay. They're the Guinness Book of World Record. They have an entry for the longest living house cat. Guess how long? Um, 50 years. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> 38 years and three days. Wow. That's like um, totally older than me. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. No, it's not. Hush your mouth, Jen. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> yeah, that's really old, though, for that a That is pretty dang old. I certainly have not had a cat live that long in my lifetime. No. I thought that was maybe some good news in these pandemic times. But also, cats can get COVID-19, so. Well, you weren't supposed to say that part oh you know me i gotta bring it back to the sad and depressing (laughs) facts okay so 
now that we've discussed a little bit more about human and ecosystem impacts and the history of plastics and how we kind of got here with being totally brainwashed as a society by the beverage companies and the bottling packaging companies to buy more of their products. Mm. It's so crazy. Just. Yeah. Anyways, you know, so now the question is, is plastic recycling or recycling in general one of the greatest myths fed to the American public? And is it time to trash recycling? Jen, what do you think of as worse? Plastic or styrofoam? Well, I think of styrofoam as worse, but I'm not exactly sure why. Right? I mean, so that's what I would think of also is the answer to mm-hmm. that question. I grew up knowing that styrofoam was really bad and that it would like break down into smaller and smaller bits, but that it would take an infinitely long time to break down in the environment. But at the same point, I also grew up thinking that plastic wasn't that bad because it's recyclable and it breaks down eventually. I mean, can take a while but not like indefinitely Hmm. and you know landfills can appropriately handle that plastic waste these are all things i thought interesting growing up at least but the reality is in the past 10 years or so we've learned that only a teeny tiny amount of plastic is actually recycled and we are growing more and more aware of the fact that it ends up in our water and in our soil in our food that we eat and the water that we drink and eventually in us so Mm. You know, it's really just interesting thinking about this like recycling thing and the beverage and it does kind of seem like, wow, were we just fed all of this and it's basically as bad as styrofoam is really. Yeah. If not worse, because it's mass produced at a much higher level than styrofoam. Right. In the Great Recycling Con, a New York Times article, author Tala Schlosherbers and Naima Raza... (laughs) real sorry yeah sorry about that (laughs) call recycling propaganda because the industry wants to trick us into thinking we can use as much plastic as we want so long as we recycle and i feel like i certainly have had those exact thoughts within my lifetime right definitely and as we've discussed here and in episode 18 the reality is most plastic isn't recycled And we have been fed the idea that plastics are recyclable, but between the inability for many plastics to be recycled and to high levels of contamination in the plastic recycle stream, much of it ends up in the landfill or worse, somewhere in our environment. According to a story on treehugger.com, for the last dozen years, recycling has been described as a fraud, a sham, a scam perpetuated by big business on citizens and municipalities of America. Recycling makes you feel good about buying disposable packaging and sorting it into neat little piles so that you can then pay your city or town to take it away and ship it across the country or farther so that somebody can melt it and downcycle it into a bench. If you're lucky. Mm, Right. So it kind of seems like we've been oversold on the idea that plastic waste could be solved with recycling. Definitely. And as the plastic market developed, new and different types of polymers flooded the market and the ability to successfully collect, sort, and recycle all those different materials became increasingly complex, which we talked about a lot in episode 18. And basically... Recycling became ineffective and contributed to environmental degradation and social and human injustices. For the latter, we mean the people who often work and live at these recycling slash garbage sites in China and Southeast Asia and are exposed to constant plastic pollution working and sometimes living in these garbage dumps basically oh wow people live in the garbage dumps. yeah it's really there's some sad 
heart-wrenching YouTube videos mm, about it. It's really sad. And it's often they're they're burning the plastics because they're sometimes mm. they're trying to get like the metals and stuff that come along with them and so it looks like, you know, it's just a plastic garbage heap and then they're like mm. burning a bunch of the plastic and the people literally live there. That's it's sad. super sad. sad. Like many environmental and human health concerns, the true cost to recycling management are hidden. As long as we are using plastic, there exists the potential for them to poison the environment and our bodies. Mm. In the end, recycling is a poor substitute for meaningful solutions, such as reducing the number of materials or products we consume and ridding ourselves of our reliance on products with an end life, which is oftentimes called a zero waste lifestyle. And that can be within a circular economy. In our current culture, when products can be produced and purchased very cheaply, it often appears to make more economic sense to simply throw away old items and purchase brand new ones. This is thought of typically as a linear economy. I'm not going to get too much into that, except for this is how we're living right now. And a big part Mm. of that is single-use packaging, where we buy, we take away, and then we throw away. You know, before single-use packaging existed, most people didn't have waste bins and trash pickup at their house. Wow. And countries spend billions of dollars every year to build and manage landfills that just compress and bury stuff. And oftentimes, it's still pretty close to ground or surface water, and, you know, eventually those lines could fail so right and producers and manufacturers basically deflect all responsibility for the end of life management of their products instead opting to offset these costs to consumers and governments so we are socializing the beverage industry <laughs> yeah subsidizing at least fabulous and unfortunately product designers are complacent also in their perpetuation of stuff designed for disposability it would be really great if we had people on the design end of things that were able to move ideas into mainstream the idea of a circular economy is basically where all the products are managed by their producers and they have no end life instead of offsetting costs and the waste management to the public they basically are reusing those things or or finding someone else who needs to use their end product or making it in a different way that has no end product Mm -hmm. so in order to move towards a circular economy we would need to look towards ways to create chemicals and materials that are readily found in nature eliminating toxins regardless of how the products are managed at the end of life and we should embrace business models that support those goals already and there are a lot of companies right now that are are moving in this direction and we've probably said it on here before but like every Every time you make a purchase, you are voting with your dollar. And I'm guilty of voting poorly with my dollar, too, or whatever. (laughs) But it's just it's a good way to, like, try to remind yourself that if you can do better that, you know, you should try Mm -hmm. if you can where you can. You should. You also shouldn't beat yourself up too much. But right. I mean, just start somewhere because that's the whole thing is they're trying to put it all (laughs) back on us. And the reality is we need big changes in the way that these businesses and capitalist society is run to really be effective. So and then, you know, in the circular economy, products would be designed for longevity, um, advanced disassembly and reuse rather than obsolescence. So your two year iPhone, that battery starts draining, you would send that back to Apple and they would revamp it and send it back to you or whatever you know they might upgrade the software in it but the you know they wouldn't be trying to come up with a new phone every two years which I mean it's another just 100% ridiculous thing it's so stupid especially now you know there was a period there where they were making a lot of progress in between maybe the different releases but now that's kind of slowed down and 
probably we mm-hmm. don't need a new phone every two years. Come on, people. Exactly. In a circular economy, manufacturers and industry would account for all their true costs, the social and environmental, and they would be responsible for products through their end life. Mm-hmm. And really, I think this is a good thing to kind of keep in mind, and maybe especially right now, but our happiness shouldn't be based on purchasing goods. And, you know, maybe this stay at home that hopefully we are all doing (laughs) is helping you purchase less. I know it's helping me. I've definitely bought less frivolous stuff just because I've been at home. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's that. You might be wondering, is there any good news? Is there any good news? Um, Yes, there is some good news. I don't have a ton of good news. Oh, okay. I was going to say, you have good news for us? Yeah, I just have like a few little snippets. There's actually, I'd like to at some point in the future go into some more of these examples in a little bit more detail. But Mm -hmm. as always, we've already been chit-chatting it up forever. So I'm just going to highlight a couple of the plans that some places have. Mm -hmm. So some countries have really big plans to curb plastic waste. And one of those is Indonesia, which I think is great. Like I told my little story, I experienced really bad plastic pollution on the beach there. Mm Mm-hmm right at the end of 1997 beginning of 1998 so I can't imagine what it's like there now and I'm glad that they're gonna try to address it I mean they're an island country so whatever gets off the land gets right out into the water and yeah it's just sad anyway so the country aims to cut marine plastic waste by 70% within five years which considering how much plastic waste they have I think is pretty substantial Right. And then by 2040, Indonesia plans to become entirely plastic pollution free. Um, Their plan embodies the principles of the circular economy in which plastics will no longer end up in the oceans, waterways and landfills, but will go on to have a new life, actually. Hmm. And to reduce ocean plastics, they've committed to five system change interventions that will change the way that plastics are produced, used and disposed of. And we'll have a link on our website if you want to read a little bit more about that. So that's that's a pretty big one. And since that sounds really fascinating, one of the big plastic polluters right now in the world, Mm -hmm. that's great that they're taking this seriously and, and have this pretty progressive plan yeah then there's some other good news out there too there's a lot of countries that have that are doing kind of these plastic bag bans right and stopping the the single use plastic so it's kind of interesting to hear what other places are doing around the world in comparison to what we are not doing here right where we're getting laws passed that ban banning plastic bags (sighs) all right so there is some good stuff going on but really You know, we need big changes in our whole society, how the whole thing works, our culture, all of it, to really make the changes we should be making, in my humble opinion. Mm -hmm. There are some companies that are starting to listen to you, but they're mostly just taking baby steps to commit to less plastic. The American Chemistry Council aims for all plastic to be recycled or recovered by 2040, but most critics dismiss the goal as 100% unrealistic. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there are major conglomerates like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Nestle who have made plans to include 25 to 50 percent recycled material in their plastic packaging between 2025 and 2030. But really, these goals to me in no way match the severity of the issue it's like yeah really they're not using that much recycled material right now like right. why right 
why exactly they have a yeah. surplus of recycled what are they called mm. i love the word eh. oh uh noodles nurdles 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 yeah yes <laughs> anyways so what can we do really the bottom line is to make change we have to change the way we view our society we need businesses to innovate their practices to move towards a circular economy that doesn't produce toxics or waste which to some people is like mind-blowing but it actually is pretty feasible on most levels mm -hmm. and we need to start doing these things yesterday <sighs> course in the end while raising public awareness of the plastic problem plastic straw and bag bans won't fix the plastic problem and neither will recycling but something else mm. can what's that it's just one small little thing uh, we just have to fix our throwaway culture sure. a culture that's fixated on the disposable lifestyle mm -hmm. the crux of which is quick and disposable eating habits although of course that's one that's been curtailed i'm sure a lot also by our social distancing just eating out right mm -hmm. but pre stay at home order think about it how much food did you purchase outside the house in convenient portable containers maybe even plastic or styrofoam you know we've replaced home cooked except for right now because now more people are home <laughs> cooking but right before and when this is over we've replaced home cooked sit-down meals with grab-and-go one-time use disposable containers to fix this we need to quickly stop the idea of the throwaway culture being normal but of course changing that's going to be pretty difficult because it kind of is in every aspect of our economy mm -hmm. but getting back to what i was saying earlier we got to remember that we vote each time we make a purchase yep manufacturers need to develop packaging that is sustainable no toxics no waste and consider a product's full life cycle including designing for the products end life we must look beyond the existing economic structure where the full costs of business are often placed on citizens and governments oh what <laughs> did you right? hear that we're paying mm -hmm. for these conglomerates people it's cray <sighs> super cray so yeah we're basically subsidizing their poor business practices awesome Mm -mm. education plays an important role clearly and all those responsible for the proliferation of plastics should be financially responsible for this task this includes more education on the overall harms of plastic and a concerted effort to stop producing plastics mm -hmm. like i don't know maybe don't have plastic producers on the board that's trying to stop plastic i don't know it's so crazy that's just crazy amy so this includes more education on the overall harms of plastic and a concerted effort to stop producing plastics. There are multiple education and outreach programs out there. Unfortunately, most of these miss the mark because they're focused on trying to teach the consumer to be a better recycler when the reality is recycling doesn't solve the plastic problem. Right. We should all strive for a zero waste lifestyle where individually we attempt to minimize or eliminate waste and therefore avoid recycling altogether. There are lots of great groups out there and if you're looking for ideas on how to actually do this. But in the end, the best way to start is just to buy less. And guess what? Our stay-at-home order should be making that a lot easier to do. Hopefully. We have to think bigger beyond the classic me focus of American culture, which is also really evident right now during the stay-at-home orders. Um, yep. Unfortunately. Ugh. Dwight D. Eisenhower stated, As we peer into society's future, we, 
you and I and our government must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. That is fascinating because he was a Republican. Yes. In, in the 50s. Wow. So let's move on and talk about something happier. Like how my beverage is tasty? Mm, no. How about GIS? Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, today I want to talk about cartography, actually. And hey, it's this is very exciting. Oh, sorry. I think I was just exhausted from talking so much. Oh, probably. So probably the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of people when they think about GIS is maps. And even though GIS is so much more, it can definitely be used to make beautiful maps. Uh, I mean, at least by some people who are actually talented and not me. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. So it's it's really easy to make a bad map and a lot of beginners make some simple mistakes. There are a lot of things to consider when you're designing a map, including what message you're trying to convey. And I think a lot of people forget about that piece and they just are putting the data on the page, but not thinking about what message it's sending. Mm -hmm. So there's also a lot of elements that sometimes can be very important, like a north arrow and a scale, a legend that's legible. For example, if you have data showing different colors based on a numeric ramp, don't overlap the numbers. Like 5 to 10 is this color, and then 10 to 20 is this color. It's like, well, where's 10 then? It's in two different categories, <laughs> and a lot of people do that. So these things can be very important, or sometimes they can be left off entirely. It depends on your map, and it depends on your audience. And it audience. depends on the context of the exactly. map. Exactly. So... I struggled a lot with cartography when I was starting out. Uh, I mean, TVH, I still struggle with it today. <laughs> also, though, when she was starting out with cartography, it was like back where you had to go out into the woods and like draw from hand and with your eyes. And not accurate. Jen's not really an artist. That is accurate. But she is a dang fine colorer. <laughs> I will say that. So, yeah, I still struggle with it today, even though I've been doing it for almost 25 years. And I'm not an expert, but I'd like to share some resources today that have been very helpful for me over the years. So first, there are style files. And I spoke about these back in episode 10. So I'm not going to talk about those more. Go listen or look up the GIS blog for that episode. All you I'll need to know is that Jen has style files for miles and miles. <laughs> Yeah, so there'll be a link in the show notes. So next, I'd like to talk about this really helpful website called colorbrewer2.org. So this website's been around for a long time, but I still use it like actually to this day. And not only do they have different really nice color palettes to choose from, but you can get suggestions for which colors to use if you're trying to make a map that's colorblind safe, for example, or can be photocopied in black and white and still be legible or printer friendly or... Do people still print maps? They do. Or that hold up on an LCD screen. So depending on your audience, you may want to focus on one or more of these. And you can see the color schemes in action and actually get the color values in several different, um, like RGB or CMYK, which is a printer. Or the hex code. Exactly. So 
there are also several cartographic geniuses out there who blog and post YouTube videos on different techniques available. And if you want inspiration, just one of these geniuses is named John Nelson. And he is a cartography superhero who currently works mm. for Esri. And he posts blogs, YouTube videos, and other content about creating beautiful and effective maps. And he made a gorgeous map of the three rivers that contribute the most plastic pollution to the ocean. Oh, yeah, that one's super cool. Yeah, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. He also wrote a blog explaining how he did it and posted style files for you to download. So nice. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. And then the last thing I want to mention is if you want to increase your cartography skills, there's actually a MOOC, which is a massive open online course on cartography every now and then. And the next one is actually happening as we speak. It started April 22nd, I believe, but you can still sign up until tomorrow with may 6th and you have until june 10th to finish it i'm taking it so i'll be posting the results of my class assignments on our webpage and social media sites nice yeah and i'll post a link to that as well as some other resources in the gis blog so amy i have a surprise for you mm. i love surprises yeah using some of the resources i made my own map to share with you and our audience. I'm going to send it to you right now. So this is my initial go at this map. <laughs> and I'm going to redo it at the end when I finish the cartography MOOC and see how much better I can make it because hopefully I'll learn some things. So what do you think, Amy? Pretty cool. This <laughs> makes so much more sense now. <laughs> I will say I like how you incorporated our standard teal and coral colors into it. Yes. Jen sent me a random text message the other day where she was spying on where I had been in the world <laughs> and I didn't know why. So Jen made a map of select locations where we made it out alive, which is actually super appropriate because that is where Will We Make It Out Alive came from is when Jen and I would be traveling and we'd be doing something ridiculous and I'd make up some even more ridiculous story about what was going on and then I would usually end it with, will we make it out alive? Exactly. So she's got a map of the world. It's a grayscale map where it's just the countries are gray and then they have an outline in our, our coral color and then the water is kind of like the teal of our stuff. And then she's got a legend on it. Did we make it out alive? And then she's got either our logo for both of us if we were there together and one for the magical mapper, which is her logo, and one for the poop detective, which is my logo. Yep. It's also got a zoomy any map, which I like in the Pacific Northwest, which, geez, we've been quite a few places in the Pacific Northwest together, Jen, Jen. And I only put a few of them on here. I by no means put all of them so wow yeah she also does have a scale on her map like a good jen jen should but i'm not seeing your north arrow jen is that because it should just be obvious because it's a world map yep okay that would be one reason why you might not need a north arrow because you're looking at the whole globe and unless you don't know about north and south you'll know where they are based on the globe yeah i like it i think it looks visually appealing the our symbols are a little bit clustered but they're already so tiny I don't know how you would right yeah so a couple things that I used when making this map I created my own style symbols using our different logos and oh that's personas. cool 
So we can use those again for other things. Yeah. So that's how I got those onto the map as the little marker symbols. And then the base map, you know, I make these in Esri because that's the software that I'm familiar with. And with Esri, they have something that's been out a few years that are called vector base maps. And you can actually go in and edit them. Wow, I did not realize that. Yeah, so you can make your own. So I started with the dark gray canvas base map and just kind of tweaked the colors and added our colors, but I kind of lightened them up a bit. And yeah, so I will put some links on the in the show notes on kind of how I did that. Cool. Very nice, Jen Jen. Mm, Thank you. I like it. I'm not super happy with it, but I'm hoping that at the end of this cartography MOOC, then I can make it so much better. It would be cool to show more information on it. Yeah, exactly. Like the year we were there. Ooh. Or how old we were when we were there. No, I'm not putting that on there. <laughs> 106. No. <laughs> That's the Gen Gen. Mm-hmm. All right. So there you have it. The end of episode 21. We hope we have, yet again, inspired you to make it out alive. Especially during these really crazy pandemic times, you know. Yeah. Right now we've been recording in real life for like almost two hours. And I'm like, <laughs> maybe we'll just leave this two hours long because people I ain't mean, got anything else better to do than listen to me talk, right? Well, because they'll be staying home. Exactly. And need stuff to do. So in this episode, we shared an emotional tale from our very own magical mapper. Aww. You are love. We discussed more about the human and environmental health impacts of recycling, or plastics really, Mm -hmm. the history of plastics, and why recycling doesn't solve the plastic problem, but how a circular economy and a zero-waste lifestyle could certainly help. Just remember, you vote with your dollar every single time you make a purchase. Yeah. Jen shared her sweet map, which I critiqued. Not too harshly, because I'm a nice person. (laughs) Thanks, Amy. (laughs) And we talked about some of the, well, she really talked about some of the cartographic aspects of using GIS and how making a good map is part art and part science. Exactly. We skipped citizen science this episode because we can, but there's always lots you can do to try to minimize your plastic waste. And we did talk a little bit about the zero wastey stuff. Please join us for our next episode, which we think we are going to highlight some of the silver lining aspects of this whole pandemic, from things like lower air pollution to cleaner waterways. The virus has kept us home and maybe has helped our planet heal just a little bit. Yay. Yay. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening now. There's a lot of them. And please let us know what you think at outalivepodcast.com or facebook.com slash will we make it out alive. That means leave us a review. I don't yes. know. I feel like maybe we need to beg a little bit more. We did get one two months ago now mm-hmm. and no other ones, right? None. Yeah. So what what gives people? Are, are you listening? Are you not listening? Do you hate us? Are we hilarious? Do we suck? Let us know. We don't care. We just want to know. I mean, hopefully you'll say nice things. <laughs> Even if you don't say nice but, things, if they're in a constructive way, we would yes. love to be better. We have no problem with being better. 
I don't exactly. at least. I mean, I'm already good, best, huge, <laughs> but you know, could get slightly better, I guess. Uh-huh. There might be one or two small ideas people could have. Yeah. Anyways, if you have any story ideas that you want to share with us or think that we should be talking about, feel free to let us know on Facebook or our website. You can email us. If you have heard anything in this episode that doesn't jive with science and facts, please let us know and we'll try to make a correction in a future episode if it's backed by science Mm. because we care about facts. That's right, because we care. We don't want to spread misinformation. Also, that's how science do. Until next time, will will we we make make it it out alive? This is Amy, the Poop Detective, signing off. Goodbye. Goodbye from Jen the Magical Mapper as well. Peace out. This is the end of a song. I mean, this is the end of a show. Somebody wanted some music. And I've always wanted to sing, you know.